Welcome to the intersection of technology, cybersecurity, and society. Welcome to ITSP Magazine. Thank you for joining us for this conversation. Very welcome to a new Their Story here on ITSP Magazine. I'm joined by our good friends at High Trust, and uh, they bring along another good friend of the industry and community uh, from ENAC. And it's a, a critical topic, um, certainly important, but I, I would even say a critical topic that we're going to be discussing today. And it's driven by the framework TEFCA. The TEFCA framework, and uh, it's really about interoperability. So what's the purpose of TEFCA? What was, what's its objective, and what are we planning to do with that? And uh, so many questions in my mind. Uh, so I'm not, I'm not going to even try to go any further with this. I'm going to take now uh, the the chance to welcome Michael Parisi back to the show. Michael, thanks for joining. Absolutely, thank you, Sean. Great to be here today. And also Lee Barrett. Lee, thanks for joining as well. Thanks, Sean. Thanks for having me. And you've both been watching this topic uh, quite a bit for many years. And uh, we're going to get into what it is. But Michael, uh, a brief word about what you do at High Trust, and perhaps even kind of connect that to uh, the topic of TEFCA and things you've been looking at over the last couple of years. Yeah, sure. Thanks, Sean. So I'm the vice president of adoption here at, at High Trust. Um, so my role is really to help organizations from all shapes and sizes and, and industries um, to manage risk more efficiently and more effectively by leveraging um, a number of our programs and, and solutions and, and those that we bring to market uh, with some of our partners like ENAC. And, and Lee and I will we'll talk about that a little bit later on. Um, in the discussion, but you know, if you dive into healthcare more specifically, when we talk about helping organizations identify ways that they can better manage risk, um, we're really talking about the largest risk that exists from a societal perspective, right? Um, which is the potential loss of, of human life. So a lot of what we're gonna talk about today, Lee and I, Sean, alongside you, is where where does this concept of interoperability play into um, a number of societal issues and challenges that, that we're trying to solve for as it relates to care delivery? And I know when I first heard the term interoperability, it's like, what is that, right? Why, why is it important? Um, and thanks to my good friend Lee and educating me over the last several years, I learned why it's it's so important, and that's probably a good place to start. I, I would say uh, that the conversation. Yeah, and we, we certainly will. Lee, a few words uh, about your role. I, I think you're deeply connected in the in the healthcare space. Uh, tell us a little bit about what you're up to. So, um, ENAC, as you were talking about when you introduced me, Sean, a lot of people may not know that the acronym. So, ENAC is the Electronic Healthcare Network Accreditation Commission. So uh, I'm the executive director and CEO for ENAC and have been in that role for 20, 27 years that we've been in existence. So um, as, as Mike was talking about, we, we have focused our 
our accreditation model has been focused as well as Mike's as a framework around uh, not only privacy and security, we partnered with High Trust uh, for that, uh, along with a lot of the stakeholder specific requirements that people are looking for as well within healthcare. So we have about 20, over 20 healthcare accreditation programs in healthcare uh, that we've developed. And we've focused over the past probably five years on development and, and uh, of a couple of programs in this interoperability space. As Mike was talking about, really we we started working on interoperability probably about three and a half years ago uh, when a first version of TEFCA first came out. So we'll we'll talk more about all that and kind of the evolution and where we started and where we are today uh, on TEFCA because really the the final version of TEFCA was actually released on January 18th of this year. So um, it's taken that long, over three and a half years to develop this program. It's gone through a lot of iterations. So we'll get into kind of the value proposition here to um, the industry and to hopefully all, all of your uh, listeners here on why is interoperability important? As Mike was talking about, you know, we've, we've, spent, we've spent, I've been involved with it for a long time and has gone through a, a fair amount of iterations as far as how it's evolved as a term as well. So uh, looking forward to uh, talking more about kind of the value proposition and, and why people need to be aware of it. Yeah. And yeah, so let's actually just start there. So in terms of interoperability and, and maybe maybe each of you can share a scenario or a story where <clears throat> something good comes from putting some standards in place and a process around how to share and, and leverage data to provide better care from an interoperability perspective. So what, what's possible now with TEFCA having passed in January? Or what's the goal, I should say? Maybe maybe not possible yet, but what's the goal? Mike, want me to start? Yeah, yeah why don't you start, Lee? Yeah. All right. So I think, you know, the best way to put this in perspective for the audience is really um, the example that I use is today, if any one of you are, are traveling and let's just say Lee is traveling and he lives in Connecticut, but he's traveling, he's in California and gets rolled into an emergency room in California, he's unconscious and that attending physician um, is trying desperately to get a, a read on my electronic health record. Without understanding my entire health record, the amount of treatment that that attending physician can provide to me is somewhat limited. They, they don't know if, if I've got allergic reactions to certain medications, et cetera. And so mortality goes up um, because there's a limited amount. They'll do everything they possibly can to make me comfortable, but they, they won't be able to provide the level of treatment that they could if they knew my entire EHR. So let's take, let's take that same scenario two years from now as interoperability and TEFCA gets implemented. That same scenario, Lee gets rolled into an EHR uh, in an ER uh, unconscious. They're able to find my wallet. They get my driver's license out. They key my driver's license number into the EHR system it immediately goes out and pulls all of these what are called qualified health information networks across the country. 
it'll assemble my EHR in seconds for that attending physician. That attending physician now has my entire EHR in front of them to be able to now know my entire history and can start treatment. And guess what? Mortality goes down. That's the value proposition. And, and that's what it does for not only treatment from, from a patient perspective, but the other aspect is what TEFCA is all about it is really as well to provide patients with greater capabilities um, to be able to manage their EHR, manage their care coordination, have greater access to all that information, and hopefully to get to the point, many of you are probably saying, well, geez, I have to go to multiple portals now to gain, get access to my information. And, and I, don't like to, I don't like doing that. I've got all my family members. I've got all these various portals. The hope is that we can get to a, a single portal or a single capability from, from a sign-on perspective with all of the security and privacy that needs to be there, but make it easier for patients to be able to not only access their information, but whether it's patients, I also bring up the example that if somebody is going through, say, a cancer treatment and they're going through chemo, many cases, patients are, are so sick as they're going through that, they really can't coordinate their, their care. So they need a care coordinator. What this will provide is the ability for whether it's the patient or a care coordinator to have access to the information to coordinate an entire continuum of multiple doctors and, and others that they need to coordinate with for that patient's care. That's another major value proposition here that interoperability is going to provide for patients. So let me stop there, but hopefully that, that provides some spectrum. I don't know, Mike, if you've got uh, other other thoughts there. Yeah, I mean, related to, to that is, um, you know, not just decreasing those mortality rates overall, but also improving the speed of care delivery, right? So I think as, as Lee was, was mentioning, you know, there are mechanisms in place today to obtain relevant information around, you know, some somebody's medical history, and what what care has been delivered in the past, maybe even what they're allergic to from a medication standpoint. Um, but albeit sometimes those are not often that reliable, right? Not number one. Um, and it's slow. I mean, anybody that's been through our care delivery model, you know how slow it is to get referrals, to get access to, to medical records and information. And when it comes to delivering care and some of the instances and examples that Lee was talking about, we don't have time, right? Because if it takes that long and we can't speed up the delivery of information to make better informed decisions around care, um, unfortunately, it will result um, in more deaths, right? So what, what we're talking about is, is real and um, it's really going to impact people's lives overall, and certainly the lives of their friends and, and family and loved ones, uh, to ensure that the care delivery model is not only more accurate, um, but also quicker. Yeah, and I, I think it, it's easy to go one, from one end to the other. We can look at the extreme of, of preventing deaths, and then the other extreme is everybody's perfectly healthy. We, we provide societal care, community care, precision care, 100%, no issues, right? But reality is we're in the middle somewhere. 
And in that middle is chaos and uncertainty and inefficiencies that could lead to death, could lead to poor health, could lead to frustration, certainly leads to waste and costs that we, we shouldn't have to deal with as, as a healthcare uh, environment. And I, I can see, I'm really interested in this, this idea of the, the, the patient because Mike, you said, how reliable is that information? How current is it? How relevant, uh, how, yeah, is it, how accurate is it? And I think ha as a patient, having a view into what's going on with your own personal health is key to all of this. So maybe with that, can, can you maybe touch on some of the stakeholders? Well, maybe let, let, first, sorry, let me, let me take a step back. What's the infrastructure look like? Because there are health networks already, right? And there are some of those connect together where there are partnerships and relationships. Are we, are we talking here that those connect them within state and cross state borders for an, a national system? Or what, what is it we're talking about here? Can you paint a picture of what that looks like? Yeah, Lee, you want to go first on that one? Sure. Yeah. So, so today, you're right, Sean. Um, a lot of these entities that are out there are, are not connected. For example, these health information networks that are out there, these HINs, we, we, we refer to them as HINs. Many, uh, many entities have to belong to multiple HINs to be able to gain access, and many don't share in. Many HINs don't share information between themselves as well. So you've got this disjointed, disconnected network of networks that's out there today. And can you, what, can you put, sorry, Lee, can you put labels on those? Is that a hospital versus a doctor practice versus a lab versus? That's hospital, that? that could be hospital, a hospital, doctor, provider to uh, hospital, provider to, and then there's these health information networks that are actually data aggregators, Sean, for hospitals and payers where a lot of data from a population health and other aspect, they're, they're managing a lot of that data. And again, what's, what's happening between all these various stakeholders is a disconnect. Not, you know, not, we haven't even gotten to the point, we've made a lot of progress, but we haven't gotten to the point that you can talk EHR, electronic health record system, to EHR from one hospital to the next. And again, we've come a long way as far as how some of that is happening through standards, some of the standards that are being used. And, and people are using um, these fire application program interfaces, which is developed as a standard by health level seven. That's starting to promulgate as far as interoperability out there. And that's really important as far as starting to gain access. But TEFCA, um, along with fire and the office for the national coordinator, ONC is really going to have responsibility for, I would say, architecting this new infrastructure for interoperability. So going back to your point, the issue is today we have all these disconnects between various organizations and cannot share data. The intent and the fact is if an organization wants to provide to share data with another entity, they have to negotiate separate agreements on how they're going to share that data. All of that takes time, money, uh, cost to the infrastructure uh, and to the system. What TEFCA is looking to do, therefore, is to 
eliminate individual contracts, have one common agreement that, that these entities will sign. They're gonna have these qualified health information networks, which will basically take the place of individual HINs, uh, health information networks that are out there. So there'll be one agreement, these, these QHINs sign one agreement between themselves and between all of the, what they're calling is flow down entities. So whether it's a provider, a payer, a lab, uh, or pharma, all of them will be able to work with these various QHINs. And again, the intent is to try to get to a single agreement. So now we're, now we're cutting out all the time and cost for individual agreements. That's one. Two, we get to the point where we break down the barriers where I need to, I can't, I can't connect to this HIN because they're not willing to connect to me. All of that now gets taken away and now we've got these QHINs, however many of those we'll have, in which they'll be connecting with all these flow down participants, they call them participants and sub-participants that will be sending information into them. So now, We've gotten a single agreement. We've got connectivity between all of these QHINs and all the participants. And now we've created the connectivity that we need to get to the point where patients have access to the data. And there's a value proposition, whether it's a patient to the, to the providers as well, as far as care coordination, to the payers in relation to as well, how they're sharing data amongst all these entities and uh, whether it's technical app developers or public health, <clears throat> as we're just coming out of a pandemic here, there'll be a lot greater ability to share and have access to data than we do today. So that's kind of part of the value proposition that the, this whole aspect around interoperability in TEFCA starts to work towards implementing in resolving the problems that we've had over these past number of years. And again, it's a matter of leveraging a lot of the standards that are already in place. But the other aspect that, that becomes important to all of this is an overarching aspect around privacy, security, and assuring stakeholder trust between all of the participants that are gonna be part of this. So Mike, I went into probably a little more depth here, but you know, there's a lot of moving parts to it. Um, what did I miss as far as what you what would you add? Yeah, um, as usual, did a fantastic job, Lee. I think on on the stakeholder side, you know, Sean, this this obviously on, only works. I think as as Lee has has alluded to, um, if all of those cats are herded appropriately. Right, because if we don't have the ability to to share that data across the ecosystem, then interoperability that doesn't work. Um, but it's important to note just how many different types of stakeholders, organizations, and people are part of that equation. Because if you step back for a second, I think it makes sense that okay, there's going to be these these networks that that have existed for a while data aggregators, as, as Lee mentioned, um, that's pretty obvious, right, that, that we need those those types of entities. Probably also obvious to say, okay, we're going to need the doctors, we're going to need the hospitals, we're going to need the, the EHRs, right? But then if you take that down a step further, when we talk about these, these flow down entities and participants, 
there's a big conversation around sub-participants. So who are all of the vendors of the hospitals that are helping them to um, maintain, collect, store this information? Are, are we talking about cloud service providers? Maybe, right? Are we talking about these um, application organizations that actually produce the, the, the EHR engines? Certainly we are. So when you think about the stakeholders, I mean, I'm, I'm of the opinion, Lee and I talk about this all the time, that that could be endless as you move down the, the chain. And it really helps you think about how many different types of entities and stakeholders are part of the care delivery model and the healthcare ecosystem. And I think it helps you appreciate that there's a lot that, that are there in order to make this work. But then it begs the question of a few other things. And Lee, Lee was starting, starting to go there, which is if this is gonna be a big kumbaya environment where all of this data is coming together and you know openly being shared, the first thing that comes to my mind as an individual is, how do I know all my stuff is being protected? and what's going to be in place to ensure that all of those stakeholders that are part of that ecosystem um, are following the appropriate standards to protect that information, right? Um, and then it may also beg the question of, well, what prevents some of those organizations, and Lee had alluded to this before, I think it's important to, to talk about this, what what protects um, some of those organizations or forces those organizations to share that data? What happens if Sean says, I'm not sharing information, I've got critical information on, on this patient and I'm gonna block Lee from getting that information, right? So there, there are other aspects as part of that equation um, that have been written in, right? From a rule perspective to say, no, 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 you can't do that. Not only are we gonna provide the infrastructure and the capability for you to share, um, but there are instances where you must share if it's going to improve the equation of, of care delivery. Lee, I don't know if you wanna talk about maybe information blocking a little bit. Yeah. So, so this is where some of the, from a timing perspective, this is where it's important. You know, we've now got, you know, Tefka, as I said, just got released uh, January 18th. Well, prior to that, last year, we had the information blocking rule, which uh, the Office for the National Coordinator, ONC, released. So ONC now, this whole information blocking rule starts to address the issue that Mike was talking about, which is Sean can't, can't say, well, I'm not going to share my information with, with B over here or C. Uh, uh, I'm only going to share what I want to share. Well, that's not going to fly. So the information blocking rule sets out specific specific kind of um, rules of the road on information and data exchange on what you can and what you cannot block as far as information. So that was very important as far as kind of setting out those rules of the road, as well as CMS itself has come out with their interoperability rule as well. So all of these pieces, Sean, have in fact been released by these various organizations, whether it's ONC, CMS, which are all important foundational components of where interoperability could go. And without them, basically, we didn't have the rules of the road. Now, 
what Tefka does, Tefka specifically now says, okay, we're, we're, we're referring to information blocking. We're referring to the CMS interoperability rule as well as rules of the road. Tefka now creates as well the rest of the digital highway and the on and off ramps for being able to exchange data. Uh, and they put in place the additional rules of the road on how we're going to exchange that data and what you can and cannot do. And we're only gonna have a single agreement. So that starts to put in place the how and leverages on the building blocks that we already have in some of these rules and addresses those. That's not to say that we're not gonna have other issues. And the other thing that's important is the fact that this is not, TEFCA itself is a voluntary implementation today. Meaning organizations that want to participate in here can do so voluntarily. So those organizations that want to be qualified health information networks can do so. We know that there are a number of these health information networks, HINs, that want to move to become and make application to become QHINs. And in fact, if, if we look at how is this actually organized, you've got ONC, uh, the Office of National Quarter, that's kind of put this in place, it's really been the architect. And you got CMS, obviously, that's been supporting this from an interoperability. And this goes all back to 2016 uh, when the 21st Century Cures Act was actually passed and with a bi bipartisan Congress. So that kind of set out what needed to be done. TEFCA became a, a very significant component of operationalizing the 21st Century Cures. And so that actually, the first iteration of TEFCA came out over three and a half years ago. Since then, it has gone through and, and what they said did as far as ONC, they said, listen, we're going to uh, put in place what is called the recognized coordinating entity. For all of your um, audience out there, hopefully you're getting at least 20 new ac acronyms out of this podcast as well. That, we, that's a guarantee out of this, but we're trying to explain it. In any event, the RCE, the RCE, okay, um, was actually designated as being the Sequoia Project. So the Sequoia Project became the RCE and the recognized coordinating entity had and has the responsibility to put together and develop one, the common agreement, which is gonna be the single way to, to connect and, and organizations will from, an, from a, um, a legal perspective. They've also put together a, a work group of potential QHINs or today health information networks to advise on how this should work. Three, they've been very transparent and open in relation to getting public input as they've developed iterations of this common agreement. So it's taken three and a half years to develop this common agreement. It's gone through a lot of iterations, a lot of evolution. And we've also seen Fire APIs three and a half years ago were in it in their infancy, okay, as far as development as application program interface. All the use cases through DaVinci, uh, as an example, in developing use cases for um, health plans and with uh, various entities and stakeholders have come a significant way. ONC, um, they also formed what was called the FAST initiative, Fire at Scale Task Force. 
and that's over three years ago. That task force had seven different uh, Tiger teams that have worked on evolving the, the fire uh, API as well for the industry and with use cases and uh, technology and security uh, oversight, et cetera. So all of these pieces have occurred. We've gotten to the point and then we had the, the evolution of these rules last year with CMS interoperability rule and then the information blocking. So now we've gotten to the point where TEFCA being released in January, where they're able to leverage a lot of those building blocks. They can leverage a lot of the evolution that's gone on as far as the fire, fire. and they came out with a three-year fire roadmap as well, because fire is going to be uh, a very important component for interoperability going forward over this next few years, because it looks to become another enablement. So on a variety of, on a variety of fronts, this was really quite an evolution over this past three and a half years, a lot of stakeholders at the table. The good news is all of them were invited to be at the table, so this was very transparent. But the RCE is really can move this forward with ONC. And I really believe that Mickey Tripathi, the ONC coordinator who was designated a little over a year ago, has really moved this, this needle on interoperability. I really believe that without the leadership uh, of like a Mickey Tripathi at the ONC level, we'd never be to where we are even today. So now we've got something to really look forward to, but we've got all this implementation and there's a whole roadmap now. And I think that's what's gonna happen from a timing standpoint, they're gonna start to finalize some of the common agreement aspects, start to onboard uh, and educate some of these potential QHINs that might want to become QHINs and start to look to create all that infrastructure and look to start to onboard some of these potential QHINs in the third, fourth quarter uh, of 22. So we might, we'll have some QHINs, I think by the end of the year, but I really believe 2023 becomes kind of the big year for implementation after all of the infrastructure is put in place. It's kind of my thought on, on timing, but we'll see some this year. I don't know, Mike, that, uh, that's kind of my thought on uh, timing. Yeah, and Mike, I want to get your yeah. your thoughts on on that uh, the roadmap because we have the common agreement that says right. this is what we're all trying to accomplish. Right. We have the framework which says this is kind of how we're going to do that. Uh, the qualified part, the the QHIN, the qualified part says there's some level of trust here, right? Mm -hmm. um, that we're driving hopefully through the common language and the interfaces through fire that we're exposing through all these networks. Is there a common way to assess risk and the level of controls and respond to gaps as, as this is being implemented? Yeah, we know, if you can build security and risk management in upfront, uh, much better off. Right. What what's interesting about that? So to add, you know, to what Lee was was talking about, I, I agree with the timing. Um, the piece that we haven't talked about yet gets into what you're asking, Sean. Um, the enforcement, right? You know, it's one thing to have all these wonderful agreements in place and interfaces and 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 rules of the road, as as Lee was talking about. This has obviously been very well thought out. But I think we all know is if somebody isn't enforcing that, 
are watching over that, um, then it all kinds of fall. It, it kind of falls apart, right? And I think when you look at other governmental agencies and, and the lack of having an enforcement arm for so many years, I mean, look at what happened when HIPAA first came out, right? It wasn't until several years later that um, the, the enforcement arm of the OCR was really getting getting off the ground to say, are people actually following what we've been telling them to do over the last several years? So what's different about TEFCA, to take it back to the RCE, as Lee mentioned, um, they kind of become traffic cop, right? And at the same time, they're also the, the enforcement arm to make sure that organizations are following all of the requirements. And a big portion of that is privacy and security. So when you look at the agreement, to bring it back to what Lee was talking about, it's a standard agreement for a reason, which means also the terms within that agreement are standard in terms of what the expectations are relative to privacy and security. Now, there's going to be things in there that you would expect to see. Uh, for example, certainly aspects of, of HIPAA, right? Naturally, we're, we're in the healthcare industry. And then there's going to be other requirements um, on top of maybe just HIPAA-specific authoritative sources. But I think one of the important things that you'll see is that the RCE is taking that a step further to say in order to provide that level of trust and comfort to the ecosystem, this can't be just say a self-attestation or a security questionnaire, right? They are explicitly indicating that it must be higher levels of assurance that has some form of independent objective validation in the form of say a certification, right? Um, some type of attestation that's been performed outside of just a self-attestation. So I think when organizations try and digest those requirements, you know, they'll, they'll quickly see that there are mechanisms and programs that have existed for, for quite some time and that align to those requirements and that will help them achieve those requirements and provide those assurances in the most efficient and effective way possible uh, relative to security and privacy standards. And that's what the RCE is not only preferring, but, but requiring when you look at the, the language that, that they've outlined. And it's not just the QHIMS. Again, as we've talked about, and as Lee mentioned, there's a lot of stakeholders part of this equation. So those expectations uh, will flow down to the participants, the sub-participants. And again, what's so interesting about how this has been established and why I, I think it's you know, very effective is they didn't leave that out when they were thinking about the common agreement either. They've explicitly indicated, look, there's an expectation that those QHINs, if you're going to let a participant enter into the ecosystem, you need to make sure they're meeting the same standards and requirements that you're held to. And those participants should be doing the same thing with their sub-participants, right? Um, so, you know, the security and privacy aspect is, is critical. And a lot of the things that not just the healthcare industry, but other industries have done traditionally relative to providing what I would what I would even go as far to say is is false assurances around having appropriate security and privacy programs in place aren't going to fly when it comes to this equation. 
I don't know, Lee, if you have anything else to, to add there. No, I think it, that, that, that was, a, I think, a good overview, Mike. I, I think the other aspect is that what they have done as part of the common agreement, Sean, as well, is that they're requiring organizations to not only use a trusted framework for privacy and security, but it's got to be done annually. Um, and so what they're, they're really raising the bar here. There, there's got to be some type of annual review as well. It could be an interim review and then a, a, a more in-depth review on the every two years. But they want an annual review. Um, and it also, as Mike said, it's going to go to the flow down to the participants and sub-participants as well. So they really thought this really well. And again, I think they're also looking to leverage um, what came out of, for example, like the Safe Harbor Bill about a year ago, uh, the Public Law 116.321, that basically identified those organizations that use recognized security practices like HITRUST, like ENACT, um, to meet those requirements that they really, they're really raising the bar here. And I really believe that they also feel that, as Mike was talking about, when you start to look at all these various exchange points that are going to occur, um, the number of risk vectors that we talk about you know, from a framework perspective increases significantly. So they really, uh, from an ON, whether it's ONC or the RCE, are really taking this very seriously in relation to assuring not only the privacy and security. Um, by having a recognized third-party entity be the certifier uh, for these entities, whether it's like a QHIN or the participants or sub-participants. But also we've developed this trusted network accreditation program with, in, in conjunction and partnership with HITRUST, in which we have aligned all of the requirements of the common agreement with, with PNAP. And so it's privacy security, it's all of the provisions that are in uh, this common agreement that we have aligned into this accreditation certification program. Makes it very uh, robust uh, and very comprehensive. What we're not saying to organizations is that, hey, you go through our program, you're guaranteed that you're going to be approved by the RCE. It's really the RCE is the only entity that has the responsibility and the accountability under ONC for approving QHINs. Uh, but, you know, we're what we're trying to do is to raise the bar uh, on that whole trust aspect and stakeholder trusts out there. Whether it's a patient, whether or not it's a payer, whether or not it's a provider, uh, the QHINs, all these various stakeholders, we're really trying to raise that bar uh, on assuring that the level of stakeholder trust is there for all of this patient exchange and to assure that the common agreement uh, and the provisions for the common agreement are being followed. Yeah, maybe Mike, I don't know if you if you want to elaborate more on uh, the Trusted Network Accreditation Program, TNAP, because what, what I hear is we, we want to have some of this in place by the end of this calendar year, certainly into 2023, we want to see widespread use of this. Um, we can't introduce more chaos <laughs> by pushing this stuff through, right? So just because we have an agreement and a framework in place uh, doesn't mean we we can abandon all the other 
all the other stuff that we've built so many years or take so many years to build in through high trust and, and the work that uh, Lee does with ENAC. So how, how does the TNAP program come into play? I'm, I'm envisioning a quick introduction for HINs that say, here are the steps you need to take to fortify your network and, and, and your, your process and your procurement and all that stuff in line with Tefka or how does it work? Yeah. So a few things. First, I think it's important to highlight what, what Lee mentioned, you know, like, like many different government standards and, and, and regulations that they're not going to explicitly point to uh, one silver bullet, right. To say, Oh, there's reciprocity and this is going to meet all, all of our requirements and as, as they shouldn't, right. Um, there, there should be multiple mechanisms for organizations to, to provide that level of assurance. But I think Sean, a couple things, I like the way that, that you, you asked it, which is there's been many types of mechanisms in place for many years. Uh, so what makes this different? What I would tell you is, I think Lee nailed it, is um, with TNAP, we have explicitly built it to align to the various requirements that stakeholders will have under TEFCA, right? So as opposed to trying to piece together these four or five different certifications, accreditations, and maybe with a little bubble gum and popsicle sticks, we could say, look, we think we've satisfied all the requirements. Um, we're trying to make it more efficient and more effective for organizations to say, here is a perspective, right? And we have outlined that for you. Um, we understand the requirements that, that you need to meet. A, because we've collectively been helping organizations with this for years, right? Um, B, a lot of it isn't significantly different than what you should have already been doing for years, whether you're actually doing it or not is a different story. And C, if we think about this spirit of what interoperability is all about, we talked about this, right? More, more efficiency, more effectiveness. Um, we want to make sure that a mechanism that we're offering to the marketplace um, is in line with that spirit, right? To achieve the requirements of the common agreement. Um, so that's that's why we built TNAP the way that, that we did. Um, it does certainly provide a roadmap for organizations. And if for, for nothing else, um, it helps them get ready as well and evaluate if they do want to make that that splash into becoming a QN. So I, I do want to comment upon timing because you mentioned, uh, you know, hey, this is going to be relevant later this year, certainly 2023. I would argue the time is now, right? And, and we've designed this program to help organizations be ready if they so choose, as Lee mentioned, to uh, apply to be a, a QN. But more importantly, if they're going to be participants as part of this ecosystem, right? Um, it's not something that you can wait for in six months down the line. You want to apply to be a QHIN or be part of the ecosystem just to find out, wow, our entire security and privacy program is not up to par. Right? So now how many more months is it going to take in order to do that? So Lee and I are in the market right now, and we have been for, for several months, um, trying to help organizations get in front of that. Um, so they're not faced with that when the time does come to become part of the ecosystem. 
I think the only the only other thing I would add add to uh, what Mike was saying is, yeah, Sean, is that there's there's two components that what we've what we've built. One is obviously the privacy and security aspect, and we're leveraging the the high trust framework. And then the TNAP, the the other component, we've taken into account all the common agreement, the, the legal aspects of the common agreement. And I was talking about as well. There's a QHIN technical framework that's also been. Um, proposed and outlined as part of the common agreement. So all the provisions on technically what organizations need to do to become a QHIN, to make application, the legal, the, the standards. And so the other aspect is they're leveraging existing standards as much as possible, rather than creating a whole new set of standards. No one needs another set of standards. So they're leveraging the existing set of standards that are already out there, that are proven, which again helps, I think, with adoption. So we've taken all of that, all of those components, those provisions on the, the QTF, the common agreement, the privacy and security, and packaged it under a single package called TNAP that we're offering uh, to these entities that want to become QHINs, the participants and sub-participants. And the other aspect of the QTF is that the RCE is put in some of their own technical requirements on how they want to test various connections. All of that we've also built into not only the technical requirements, but the business requirements. So it's, you know, we've, we've given it a lot of thought. And again, one of the things I can tell you is we started developing this program over three years ago. And we put together a steering committee of about 30 healthcare organizations over three years ago to start this. So we have continued to evolve this as TEFCA has evolved as well. So uh, we're not just newbies. We didn't just say, gee, yesterday, hey, let's develop this program. So, you know, it's um, it's been a lot of work and, and a lot of effort on a part of a lot of people, but that's how this all aligns. Yeah, and I, I appreciate that additional insight there, Lee. And then what I'm thinking here is as we come to the to the close of this conversation, I mean, there's so much more we can dig into. But I want to circle back to the beginning, and I want to use the word Mike used, which is uh, spirit. And I know both of you hold the spirit of enabling every part of the health ecosystem to provide better care. And what I know each of you do with, with your respective organizations is to help reduce the friction, make that onboarding to new things like Tefka, as a great example, uh, easier, right? If the if it's too difficult to be part of it, it's too expensive to be part of it. If it's if you don't even know how to start to be part of it, you're not going to take the time and invest to be part of it. So, what I love about this conversation is your goal, as you've been doing for years in this space, is to reduce the level of effort, to reduce the level of cost, to reduce the level of frustration to make it possible for everybody up and down the healthcare stack to do their part to provide better care. And I think we've reached a point where interoperability is necessary. I use the word critical uh, at the beginning of the conversation. I think we're at that point. And to Mike's, Michael's point earlier as well, the time is now, right? To understand how we can, we, including us uh, patients, can be part of this system to, uh, to hopefully get better care for everybody. And uh, yeah, so 
Tefka's here, TNAP's available, High Trust and ENAC working together along with other stakeholders uh, that help define this, uh, define this agreement and, and framework. And Michael Lee, I, I appreciate you sharing your insights here and for doing the work that you do to help make this possible. Um, Michael, quick, quick uh, moment, final thoughts from you as we wrap. Yeah, um, we're all part of the equation. Sean, to your point, I think uh, the listeners will hear um, how passionately and I are are about this, and um, it's about an enablement. And if we can enable those stakeholders that we know are critical to making interoperability work, that's what we want to do. And and we see ourselves as part of that equation through enablement. This this does not need to be overly complicated. And if it is overly complicated, uh, then that impacts better, quicker care delivery. So that's how we see ourselves fitting into the equation. And we're very passionate about it. Yeah, I can hear that. And Lee, final thought from you as well. It's all about stakeholder trust. It's all about raising the bar and creating a, a the highest level of stakeholder trust uh, across all of the various stakeholders here, including patients, which are which is really a, a a very key component, is really raising the bar to allow patients to have a lot more access to their data or caregivers. And we are passionate about it, as as Mike said, uh, we are very passionate. We and we've been in this, and quite frankly, it's a, it's a significant opportunity for all of us in this ecosystem to really really make a very significant change for the future. And I think that's our opportunity uh, to work together as well. It's all about collaboration and it's going to take all of us working together to, to make it a success, Sean. Yeah, I love it. And I, I think we successfully, not purposely avoided the word transparency, but collaboration with transparency, <laughs> um, I think is key. So uh, I could keep talking. I'm going to stop. Um, if Mark, my co-founder was here, Marco would be kicking me on the side to say that's enough. But I think seriously, uh, super important conversation. Thank you both for sharing your story with us. And we all have a role to play, uh, one side or the other, or both in many cases as well. So thanks, Michael. Thanks, Lee. And thanks Thank everybody you, for listening to this story. If you enjoyed this podcast, share ITSP Magazine with your friends, family, and colleagues. Thank you for listening.